Today's sermon comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, my friends, it's a delight to be with you here in worship this morning on this beautiful day. Like many of you, I spent some time in reflection yesterday over the events that took place 20 years ago in our country. Like probably some of you, I cried when I would hear stories, and I was reminded of things that I had forgotten about. I was reminded of Father Michael Judge, who was a Catholic priest and chaplain of the Fire Department of New York. Pardon me. He was a Fire Department of New York chaplain. Uh, he's called one of the first victims because he very early on was in one of the towers helping people get out, and he was struck. And I just remember seeing him in photographs being carried out by firefighters. And I got to see some footage of him inside praying for people and with people. At any rate, they found in his breast pocket a prayer that he wrote for himself. I used to have it taped on my office wall. I thought it was a good prayer. I'd like to pray it with you now as we begin to think about this passage. Do you mind praying this prayer with me? Join your heart with mine in prayer. Lord, take me where you want me to go. Let me meet who you want me to meet. Tell me what you want me to say. Keep me out of your way. Amen. We are entering our second sermon in the sermon series, Reset, Restore, and Recommit. This is all about thinking about coming back together in various ways. And I know COVID is spiking and it makes one, some people want to stay home, but still the spirit of recommitting and reconnecting and restoring is something we really want to be about here at Peachtree Christian Church. This is a prayer guide put together by Reverend Chambers. It's out there in the narthex on the pedestal for every day of prayer. You can uh, pick this up and follow along with us. And it goes along with our topics for this month. Also, I want to welcome him back. He's now sitting back there with his lovely bride. He just got back from Paris, France, where he recorded his first album and contributed to another album uh, that was a part of a music collective called Porter's Gate. And I think that, for one, is pretty fantastic. Can you give him a debt of gratitude for his creative work? You'll be hearing more about that as it comes out later on, hopefully in the fall. Let's settle ourselves one more time. I'd like you to exhale your lung, air in your lungs, so when you breathe in next, you breathe in the breath of God. Breathe in the breath of God. Spirit be with us. Guide us now. Amen. 
When you spend any time in my vocation, that is parish or church ministry, you tend to hear a question asked a lot that you often ask yourself. What should the church be like? What should it look like? Many of you know I used to sell furniture when I was in seminary. I was also a part-time pastor. And anytime someone came through the doors, it was my task to build a bit of a rapport with them because that's the easiest way to get someone to buy something from you. I started speaking with this woman. She wanted a new sofa. And she told me pretty early on that she was a Christian. And I said, oh, well, that's great. So am I. And I'm in seminary. I'm a, I'm a pastor. And I tried to connect with her because I wanted to buy her to buy my sofa. And then she said, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm done with the church. She said, I'm a Christian, but I'm done with the church. It's always a curious feeling to hear someone say that when you're in my line of work. I inquired more. She didn't like the institutional nature of her church or politics or something. You know, it's one of the things that people complain about that I've heard a hundred times. But she said, uniquely, that God had called her to do something new instead of church. What is that? God was calling her to meet in her home with some friends every week, and they would share a meal. And she whispered as if this were somehow wrong. She would say, we even have the Lord's Supper. And she would talk about reading the scriptures together and, and learning from them and all this. She even said they take up money each time they gather, and they pick charitable cases or causes to send that money out to help. I didn't have the heart to tell her, because I wanted her to buy a couch, that she had just reinvented the church. Another time, I was in a conference on church growth. I've had to ask forgiveness for my sins for being in too many of these conferences, especially in the early 2000s. They're all the same, at least in my experience. We bring in a really celebrity pastor, a big-time pastor who's a part of a church that's got thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And then they come in, and they begin to talk to all these other pastors and church leaders and seminarians about how to grow a church. They usually talk about their own techniques that you can probably buy in a book that's at the back table. So this one time, this guy says, you need to have your target audience. I always thought the church's target audience was the world, all people. But he spoke in marketing language because that seemed to be effective where he was and in that day and time. He said, people are wigged out today by church buildings. We don't think you should have churches that look like churches. They should look more like schools. Sanctuaries look more like black boxes. We've removed all the symbols of our faith like the cross because people find it too gruesome to think about the cross. And then he showed a PowerPoint slide of their ideal member, and it was a man about my age who had a polo shirt and a lanyard around his neck, khaki pants, and a telephone clipped to his belt, a rather large one. The idea for that era was that this was an upwardly mobile person in their business. They would be married, have 2.3 kids, and immediately I thought, well, what about poor people? What about children? What about single people? What about the elderly? Another time, I was out in New England. I was doing some 
demographic research for a church planner in Boston. It was through an organization where they planted churches all throughout New England to reach people who have left the church. We'd walk around the Boston area videoing people, not getting hard data, but getting stories, getting a sense for how people felt about Christianity and the church. The guy who ran the organization said that every church they plant that has the name Christian in it. I said, why is that? Well, he said, because they went through this era, we've all seen it, where there's so many churches called uh, community church. But now in New England, it was getting so dark spiritually that when people were looking for some light, they'd open a phone book. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> and they'd want to go look and find out who you were. What kind of church were you? What were you about? So much of what I'm describing is just the window treatments, friends. So much of this is about style, cultural preferences, comforts, even tradition. But the question is an important one still. What should the church be like? And if Christians aren't going to answer that question or engage that question, then the wider world will. Right now, people are arguing over the tax-exempt status of churches. Atheist groups, secular groups are wondering, why does the church get that status? It's an example of how the wider world is going to ask the question for us. What should the church be like? This morning's text that we heard read, read beautifully by Dr. Wortman is an example of a text that has been foundational for the church and how it identifies itself and its behaviors. It's a question for an important time, and it's a text for an important time. It says that the believers met regularly. They had all things in common. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We take that to be the preaching and teaching aspect of a community of faith. It says that they ate regularly together. We take this to be Eucharistic in nature. It says that they prayed together. They fellowshiped together. And it says so much more than that. Actually, it says that they met in homes. They met out in public and in other corporate worshiping places to do this. And that they had everything in common. It is a convivial, common life that's upheld by teaching and prayer and fellowship and communion. And all of that is supposed to mark out the community of the church in a different way than the wider society. Oh, and this ancient new church that we read about was contagious. It was so life-giving. It was contributed to mutual flourishing so much that they added to their number daily those who were being saved. The life of the church is meant to be lived together, where we're concerned about each other's mutual flourishing and well-being, where we're concerned about the dignity of each person and do things to help support that dignity as that person needs to be extended ever nearer to the throne of grace. And we're supposed to live with all things in common. That's a hard thing to think about in our Western society. We are so hierarchical. We're so individualistic that we tend to think about people along a scale of importance or prestige or power. I had a friend who was a chaplain in one of our armed services. 
He said church was kind of hard in that setting because one thing that they couldn't escape was the rank of a person. In church, there's not supposed to be anyone who goes first to the table. Everyone's welcome to the table by Jesus. It's the same blood that makes us family. No one's supposed to be higher in importance. It's hard to get around in the military when you come in with a certain rank. But then he said something changed for him. He had an experience of grace. You see, he was a part of a tradition that practiced foot washing. I don't know if you've ever washed each other's feet, but some traditions do this to mimic Jesus in the upper room with the disciples. It's a symbol of your humility and service before your brothers and sisters. It's a moment of solidarity. He said a high-ranking officer came in to worship with this group, and he insisted that he would bend the knee before each and every other person there, and that he would lower himself before them. My friend was crying when he told me this, because in that sense, in that moment, he had the sense of the commonality of faith. But this common life, it's, it's to be so deep that people's resources take on a different shape than the shape in our society. We believe that you work hard and that you get what you get for it. We believe in amassing wealth. We believe in wealth management. These are phrases and things that we say often in our society. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be wise about our retirement plans. But what I am saying is this, that even in the medieval period of the Christian church, Theologians and priests and bishops were debating the idea of whether or not it was moral or ethical for a Christian to hold private property. Very brilliant people were debating about whether or not it was okay for Christians to hold on to private property. And I believe it was the great thinker St. Thomas Aquinas who says, it is okay insofar as that the Christian uses their resources, their, their private property for the betterment of other people. It was meant to be shared in the life of the church. You know, what is a church supposed to be? What's it supposed to look like? I keep using this word convivial, this just movement of life, of brothers and sisters who share their lives with each other, not who come in and sit down to receive their holy medicine or snack and then leave, but to belong to one another, to lift each other up, to will the good of each other, to look, look for the best in others and bring out mutual flourishing. That's one reason why I'm not worried about the future of this congregation. People have asked for 18 plus months if I'm worried if people will go back to church. I'm really not. I'm not because I think that we are made to be together. I'm not because I believe we're made to be here in solidarity as we stand before our Creator. And I believe we're drawn to it. I always tell other pastors that maybe what we need to do is make worship so compelling people just have to be there on Sunday morning. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk more about this, but I think that one way we can start working on this now is actually intentionally meeting with each other in smaller groups and classes. I don't know, maybe you can meet with a couple of the other brothers and sisters from the church in your country club or maybe in your kitchen, or maybe it's simply that you meet on back decks. And there, devote yourselves profoundly to sharing the Eucharist together.
delve real deeply into that sharing of the body and blood of Christ to understand that it means that your fates are bound together. And, and maybe once this life-giving little part of the kingdom takes shape in your homes and in your places of business, you will not be able to wait for Sunday because you want to rush back to see the entire body and bring your new life with you as you join yours with them. Not worried about it. We're made for common life. Yesterday I saw something online as I was reflecting on the tragic events of September the 11th. Somebody was lamenting that they missed September the 12th. They missed it. They yearned for September the 12th. It said, <clears throat> Before, on 9-12, before we were Republicans and Democrats, Christians, Jews, Muslims, before we were this, before we were that, we were Americans. Didn't sit right with me, to be honest. I thought about it. At first, my first thought that bothered me was that for Christians, it can't be said that way. For Christians, before we are Americans or French, before we're left or right, or before we're this or before we're that, we are Christians first. But then secondly, it took my mind back to that sense of national unity I think we felt after the towers fell. And I thought about that unity and how fleeting it is and was. And I thought about how, yeah, I really wish and pray that we could have a sense of national unity right now. We need it. Then I thought about what the unity was based on. The unity is based on terror and sorrow and a common enemy. We're unified against a foe. And so that can't be the case for the church. What should the church be? We should be united out of a sense of common life, mutual flourishing, the uplifting of one another as we are all pilgrims on our path toward the kingdom of God. I hope you'll join me as we continue walking this path together and figuring out better ways for us to be life-giving church members to each other and as representatives to the wider world. God bless.